We began last week together a two-part series of studies on the great Beatitudes of Jesus. The teaching that Jesus gives us at the very front of his famous Sermon on the Mount. And you may recall that in Matthew 5, the very start of that sermon, Jesus uh, is encountering his disciples from a hillside. Matthew 5 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds who were following him, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are. Blessed are. Now, as I explained last week, part of the difficulty that many people have with understanding the teaching that follows after those particular words is because we have a basic misunderstanding about the nature of this word blessed that Jesus speaks. Like the Greeks before us, we often associate that word blessed with the idea of being happy or carefree. I think of myself on Sunday afternoons after the work of the sermon and the Sunday morning is done. I think of sitting on the couch, putting my feet up, watching the Olympics, enjoying another donut, and I think that's what it means to be blessed. Well, this vision of blessedness is short of the vision of blessedness as given to us in the Scriptures. Because when Jesus uses the word, he is using it with the meaning that the Hebrew people attach to it. In their understanding, to be blessed was to be in the right path to meet God and to fulfill his kingdom's calling. And that might involve happiness at times. That might involve moments of of carefree bliss. But it was so much more than that. It was crucial to be in the right path to meet God and to fulfill his kingdom's calling. We began to get a sense of this last week as we studied the first of the the first four Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes are essentially concerned with the life circumstances where we meet God in a deeper way than at other times. Conditions like poverty of spirit or mourning or meekness or hunger and thirst are circumstances that don't feel blessed in most cases in the happy, carefree sense of that word. But the fact is that these experiences, these conditions or attitudes more than perhaps many other experiences of life, are ones which put us in the right path to meet more of God than we might otherwise. When we're in mourning, for example, we become aligned with the grief that God feels over the pain and the brokenness and the losses of this life. Uh, When we are are at the end of our, our resource stream, when we're poor in spirit, when we're at the bottom of our own resource well, We're in a place to finally open ourselves up and seek after the resources of God. When we're meek, in other words, when we're brought to that place where our power is not being actively expressed, even though it could be, we're in sync with the way that God uses power, with the way that God restrains the full potency that he could exercise in many circumstances. And when we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, when we're aching and yearning after something more than we have, then and finally then, we're in a position to be filled. Today, we're going to look at the last four of the Beatitudes. In this part of Christ's teaching, 
Jesus is describing four particular ways of being in the world that have less to do with just meeting God, as the first four Beatitudes do, and a bit more to do with how it is that we advance the purposes of God, how it is we enflesh the values or the character of the kingdom of God in this world. The unstated backdrop for what Jesus is teaching us here has to do with an understanding of the life of struggle in which we are situated. The backdrop to this teaching of Jesus, in fact, it is the uh, context of so much of what Jesus says about life, is that we are living in a world that is hostile to the ways of the kingdom of God. We're living in a land that has been overrun by enemy forces, so to speak. Jesus so often describes life in these terms. We're living in a world where many people are now subject to living by the rules of a kingdom that is very different than the kingdom God seeks to establish. In fact, so many have been living under the rules of this different kingdom, and for so long they've forgotten what it looks like to live by the vision and values of the kingdom of God. And so in these last four Beatitudes, Jesus is describing what it will look like for you and me to heroically resist the way of life that's become common in our land. And one evidence of the fact that this way of his his kingdom is so different is that uh, the, the kinds of things he's described in the first four Beatitudes Uh, Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger. These things never look to this world's kingdom as blessings. And yet ultimately are uh, doorways into an encounter uh, with God. A blessed encounter with God. So now Jesus turns in these last four Beatitudes describing what it looks like for you and me to heroically resist the ways of this world and to live in concert with the value and vision of the kingdom. So he describes four practical ways of resistance, and he gives us a set of four particular promises to those who will faithfully serve the kingdom's cause because uh, there are going to be risks and there are going to be costs uh, to serving uh, the Lord's kingdom. So here's the question. Here's the question that I believe the teaching of Jesus is posing for us today. Does our way of being in the world right now, your way, my way of being in the world right now, does that way suggest that we are on the Lord's side of the great struggle that's going on in our world? Or does it suggest that we have already surrendered uh, in perhaps subtle ways to the way of the enemy? That's the question that I want us to think about today as we look together at these four Beatitudes. Are you, for example, somebody whom others might call merciful. Blessed are the merciful, says Jesus, for they shall receive mercy. I think in this regard of the example of an historical figure by the name of Peter Miller. Uh, Peter Miller was a Baptist pastor during the time of the Revolutionary War. He enjoyed the personal friendship of General George Washington. Although Miller had uh, relatively few enemies, was a respected man in his community, he had one individual who absolutely despised him. For reasons we do not know, this individual, a man by the name of Michael Whitman, uh, set out in every way to ruin the reputation and destroy the life of Peter Miller. As it happened, uh, the unscrupulous character of 
Uh, Michael Whitman ultimately led him into an act of malevolence that led him further into an act of treason uh, against the burgeoning nation. And for this, he was arrested and then sentenced to death. Now, I suppose that it would have been natural as the news reached the ears of Peter Miller that Whitman had been finally pulled down. It would have been natural for him to rejoice in the judgment that was now coming upon his enemy, right? That would have been natural. And maybe he wouldn't have done it openly, but maybe privately he would have felt a certain sense of glee or pleasure in the downfall of this man who had hurt him. That is the way of the world, after all, isn't it? I mean, honestly, the natural way of the world is to feel some pleasure when the people who have been trying to hurt us, who oppose us, who who make life difficult for us when we're trying to do right, suffer themselves. But the very naturalness of that kind of response is why what Peter Miller actually did under these circumstances stands out as one incredible example, I think, of Christian resistance to the ways of this world. I'm told that the elderly preacher, upon hearing the news of Michael Whitman's arrest and sentencing, left his home in Pennsylvania, and walked by himself, walked by himself more than 70, 70 miles to Philadelphia. He went to Philadelphia not to watch the hanging of Michael Whitman, as we might assume, but to find his friend George Washington and plead for the life of Michael Whitman. I'm told that Washington replied to Uh, Peter Miller's uh, overtures with a negative. He says, no, Peter, I can't grant you the life of your friend. And Miller responded, you don't understand. He is not my friend. He is the bitterest enemy I have. What, said the general? You come to plead for the life of your enemy? Well, that, says Washington, puts things in a different light. That I will grant a pardon for. And so as history records, Washington pardoned Michael Whitman. I've read that Miller walked all the way back to his home, this time no longer alone. And in his company now was a new friend, a man named Michael Whitman. And dare I say, also in their company, an old unseen friend, the one who himself, once upon a time, went to the bar of justice on behalf of those deserved nothing but punishment and pled on their behalf, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Chances are that there is someone in your life who has wounded you. Chances are there's somebody you can bring to mind who has caused you pain, frustration, irritation, someone that you might like to see come under judgment, someone you'd like to see get what is coming to them. And you might say that judgment is only natural for that person, and it probably is. But now and then there comes along people who resist what is natural to this world and who live instead by what is divine in the terms of the kingdom of God. Jesus says that those who exercise mercy are in the right path. What is mercy? 
Mercy is not giving someone the bad that they deserve. Grace is giving them a good they don't deserve. But mercy is not dealing them the bad that they do deserve. And Jesus says that those who exercise this kind of mercy are in the very path of the kingdom of God. They're in the right path, not simply because in their mercy, they are imitating God most fully, though they are. But also because when one day there comes the time for them to stand before the judgment seat of God, they will find themselves enjoying the favor of the supreme general himself. For blessed are the merciful, said Jesus. They shall receive mercy. Are you, are you someone in that company? Is your way of being in the world a merciful one? Blessed are the pure in heart, also says Jesus, for they will see God. To make clear the implications of this further beatitude, let me just suggest an experiment to you. The next time you find yourself at a party, the next time you're out with a group of friends that may be inclined perhaps to tie one on, as the euphemism goes, try telling them that you're going to be abstaining because you've discovered that chemicals like these that everybody is inclined to take in limit your capacity to think clearly and you want to be at your best. Try that. Or when one of the guys on the golf course or at work begins to tell an off-color joke the next time that happens, humbly just speak up and say that, you know, frankly, you'd prefer not to hear the rest of that story because, well, frankly, you find that it distorts your view of, of of women or of the relationship between men and women. Or the next time the conversation with the girls turns to shredding somebody behind her back, just quietly speak up and request that, that we change the subject because you found that gossip hurts your capacity to love that other person as freely and fully as you're trying to. Isn't the reason that most of us get very uncomfortable at the mere suggestion of an experiment like I'm describing is because we already know the results. What would happen if you said something like that (laughs) in those kinds of circumstances? Those who work at keeping their hearts free of impurity, those who are actually open about their intention to keep themselves pure in that way will usually receive the same kind of popular acclaim that those who choose the way of Jesus over the way of vengeance where justice and mercy are concerned is. They will receive very little popular acclaim. And what a shame that is if you think about it. Because you see, the thoughts and the influences that we are constantly allowing to bombard our minds and our hearts affect our entire view of reality, our orientation towards other people, our capacity to be effective in this spiritual war that rages all around us. All day long, the enemy is transmitting into our hearts and minds a blinding stream of propaganda. Amidst all that is frankly good and helpful in the media out there, and there's, there's plenty of it, There are all kinds of demoralizing and degrading messages that are being propagated as well. We're hearing messages about how much happier we would be if we just had more hair, if we just had more money, 
if we had just more gadgets or more beer. And we wonder why people increasingly in our day don't feel like there's anything that is fully adequate for them with this constant stream pouring into their hearts. Every evening we're subjected to this seemingly endless record of casual sex and graphic violence, and we're surprised when our young people don't seem to take either of those dangers very seriously anymore. From the talk shows to the sitcoms, we're fed this diet of pathological soap opera quality relationships. And we wonder why more of us don't know what a healthy one even looks like anymore. You start watching some of these programs. You watch a Jerry Springer or the Family Guy or the Simpsons at the beginning, and your first encounter with this is to go, oh, man, this is revulsive. I mean, look the way they're treating each other. And then you find that after a while you don't even notice it anymore. It just seems amusing to you. You've bought in. You've, been, you've surrendered to the culture. You've surrendered to the culture of impurity. I remember watching for the very first time Married with Children years ago, and I thought, how could a man and wife treat each other that way? And I found as I watched it over time, I no longer noticed. It just became funny to me. How hard it is to maintain a purity of heart amidst the battles of our time. And, 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 and yet it, how important it is that we do so. In the words of C.S. Lewis, The instrument through which we see God is our whole self. And if a man's self, says Lewis, is not kept clean and bright, his glimpse of God will be blurred like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. If we can't see God any longer, if our telescope, our lenses become so smudged up, so crudded up, so obscured that we can't see the face of God anymore, the holiness and the beauty and the goodness of God anymore. What hope is there for human life? Thus says Jesus, blessed are those who resist the flow of the culture, who work to keep their hearts pure, who focus themselves on what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy because they'll see God if they focus themselves there. So maybe today it's time to go out and walk in the forest preserve, bundle up and go out into the forest preserve instead of sitting down in front of the tube. Maybe it's the day to go visit the Art Institute and look at the magnificence of beauty. Maybe it's time to open up a great work of literature, to read poetry or to rediscover that which is pure and good and noble and noteworthy instead of simply opening ourselves to the flood of stuff that's pouring relentlessly into the trash can of the human heart. To the mindset of mercy, to the passion for purity that are the way of the kingdom, Jesus identifies a third attribute of those who have joined his sacred resistance to the way of the world. Blessed, he says, are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I think many of us have misunderstood this particular beatitude. And I think that is because we have struggled to grasp the crucial distinction between being a peacemaker and being merely a peacekeeper. 
What's the difference? What's the difference, you might ask, between those two things? Well, a peacekeeper is the person who works to keep things quiet at all costs. A peacekeeper is the person that works to suppress conflict at any cost, even if that means ignoring it, appeasing it, burying it. But a peacemaker is the one who has a vision for long-term, real harmony, even if that means confronting a bully, confronting a messy truth, facing up to a brutal fact in order to reach out for that longer-term good. A peacekeeper is the person who rules with an iron fist in order to keep everyone under control. A peacemaker is the one who leads with an open hand in order to build a common vision and to earn trust, even if it's tumultuous, to establish it that way. To paraphrase the Presbyterian author Frederick Beekner, a peacemaker knows that genuine peace is not the absence of struggle, but the presence of love. Are you a peacemaker or merely a peacekeeper? As with mercy and with purity of heart, Jesus is our model in this be attitude, if you think about it. We see Jesus at times going right into the midst of the struggle with an almost careless abandon. We see him overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple. We see him lambasting the Pharisees. We hear him decrying the moral decay of his society simply because Jesus loved people too much to keep the peace by being silent. At the other times, we watch Jesus refusing to take up a sword when he could have. We see Jesus refusing to to take up violence to save his own life. We see Jesus allowing his disciples to blunder around in absolute chaos as they worked out the truth. We see him leading by invitation rather than by decrees. Simply because Jesus loved people too much to keep the peace by force. The call of Jesus for you and me is to do likewise. It is to pursue peace through the assertion of love. And it's a difficult business. It's messy. It requires creative tensions. It requires a constant attention to the proper balance between truth and grace. But it is the right path. It is the path of the kingdom. And those who pursue it, who resist the way of the world in pursuing it, are ultimately the children of God. And that's your calling. And that's my calling in the midst of this war in which we find ourselves today. But be, be warned about this. Be warned before you try to be a peacemaker. The world is every bit as hard on peacemakers as it is on those who are pure in heart. Every bit as hard on peacemakers and the pure in heart as it is on those who are merciful. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if someone were to walk this earth who possessed in his person the concentration of those three attributes, mercy, right? Mercy, purity, peacemaking. If somebody possessed those 
in profound concentration and move through this society, it would present to the world such a force of resistance to its ways that the only response women and men could possibly give would be to either throw himself into his everlasting service or to nail him to a cross. You'd have to make a choice. You'd have to make a choice. Yet still, there are those who choose the way of blessed resistance. Are you willing to be one of them? Are you willing to stand up and be one of them? Make no mistake about it. You will not get a medal for being merciful in this world. Nobody in our society is going to give you a field promotion for being pure in heart. You will probably never hear martial praise for being a peacemaker. For doing these things, you may in fact be branded a wimp, a prude, and a troublemaker. But lest that frighten you from enlisting, let me just say that I swear in the midst of the struggle I have myself to choose the way of the kingdom versus the way of this world, I swear there are these moments when I hear the roll of distant drums and the sound of trumpets on high, which one day will greet you and everybody else who chooses this way of resistance with a hero's welcome. There are instances when I can almost see the look of pride in the eyes of those legions of faithful soldiers before us who even now from the gallery of heaven cheer the valor of those like you who will not walk passively into this world's dark night. There are moments when if we allow ourselves to stop long enough, maybe here in this place, we'll feel the press upon our shoulders of the hand of the commander himself, the great general himself, and we'll hear those words coming out from his lips, which will one day greet those who dare to stand and resist the way of this world and suffer on behalf of the cause of the kingdom. And it will be just a prelude to glory. And these are his words. Well done, good and faithful soldier. For blessed, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Blessed are you when you feel the press of resistance. When you are resisting the way of this failing world. Blessed are you who were persecuted on my account and for righteousness sake. Come, claim the great reward, says Jesus. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Do you want it? Will you live for it? Will you choose it? Please pray with me. Great and glorious God, when we gaze upon the life of Jesus... We meet a courage that humbles us. We hear him standing before you, O God, asking that mercy be extended to us of all people. We see him maintaining a purity of heart that fills us, Lord, with an awareness of how impure our hearts are, and yet also with a desire to change. We find him stretching out his arms to make peace between each of us and twixt us and you. And we're humbled even more.
Grant, dear Lord, a greater measure of such courage to each of us, we pray. That we might go forth this week and bring honor to his name. And so whether it be by advancing the cause of mercy or of purity or of peace, make us loyal soldiers of thy sacred resistance, we humbly pray in the name and for the sake and with the power of Jesus, Jesus the Lord, we pray. Amen.